Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, it's me, Chris Garcia, sneaking into the Tudo Queens feed. Phoebe and Jessica gave me the password. It's Bono69. I think they trust me because I was on this podcast twice. The first time was right after Trump was inaugurated. Me and John Hamm were both on that episode. I was the handsomer of the two. Anyway, horrible week, amazing show. Most of that set was about my dad, and it ended up kind of blowing up to the point where I was given the chance to make a podcast about his life. It's called Scattered. It's a story of a man making his way from the labor camps of Cuba to Inglewood, California, and about all of the secrets that my family kept along the way. Thank you so much to Phoebe and Jessica for giving me this amazing platform and to all of you that reached out after my set. Um, And now I'm really, really excited to share the first episode here. If you like it, you can look up Scattered wherever you get your podcast and hear episode two, and then three, and four, and five, and six. Thank you so much for listening. refugees or immigrants from Cuba. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, you know what? I think a lot of comics get on stage and they make fun of their immigrant parents, and I think those days are done. I think we have a better responsibility now. It's very disrespectful. It's very rude. It's also very unfair. My father doesn't have any recourse. My dad never once got on stage and shit on me. (laughs) Not once did my dad get on stage. Hey, you guys! Anybody have an American-born kid? (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna talk about it. Oh, man. You're listening to the first set I ever did on the podcast Two Dope Queens. The crowd loved me, but they really loved when I played my dad. He was the centerpiece of my act. My son, Christian? He goes by, Chris? <laughs> yeah, okay, I believe it, man. <laughs> His name is Cristian Andres Primitivo Garcia. But sure, call him Chris. Oh, yeah, very cute. I put everything. I broke my back for this kid. I work blue-collar jobs, graveyard shift to put him in a good school, escuela privada, private school. I encourage him, Christian, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. This is America, the land of opportunity. You are a good person, you work hard, you can do forever you want. You can do forever you want. He goes to UC Berkeley. Yeah, one of the best public universities in the United States. And you wanna know what he studied? Are you telling me I float into shark-infested waters on a hubcap so this motherfucker can read haikus? 
My father never did that. My dad's name was Andres Primitivo Garcia, and he was such a gentleman. Whenever he met one of my girlfriends, he'd extend his hand, give her a firm handshake, and say, Soy Andres, a tus pies, which means, I'm Andre, I serve at your feet. He was real classy like that. He had a great smile. It's very warm and genuine. We actually look a lot alike. In fact, it was one of my first jokes. When I was like four years old, people would say, hey, you look like your dad. I'd say, actually, he looks like me. We lived in Los Angeles, and when I was a kid, my dad worked as a machinist making parts for aircrafts. But even in his free time, he was always making things. He made a jewelry press, a mechanical orange peeler. He would have killed it on Gilligan's Island. He would have been like, give me two coconuts and a shoelace, and I'll make you a cell phone tower. And when I was a kid, baseball was our thing. He taught me how to throw a circle change and a knuckle curve by the time I was eight. He'd even take me to the batting cages when I was a little pudgy 10-year-old boy, and he'd make me face the 80-mile-an-hour pitching machine. When I was in Little League, he'd get into it. One time I was covering home plate and I tagged the runner out, but the umpire blew the call and yelled safe, and my dad got so pissed that he leapt out of the stand, started scaling the fence behind home plate King Kong style, yelling, You son of a bitch! I didn't come to the United States for this! The umpire threw him out of the game. Sometime in 2007, my dad began acting kind of weird. It started with him forgetting where he'd left his keys. Then he started repeating the same stories over and over again and calling people by the wrong name. This one time he recycled a Diet Pepsi can in my sock drawer. Then his personality started to change. He was super irritable. He started getting in fights with strangers like more than usual. One day he came home with a cut above his eye because he started shit with two kids on the bus. This other time at church, he attacked a pastor during a sermon. So we started seeing doctors, and we got a verdict. Alzheimer's. This is one of the only recordings I have of my dad, of us together. It's about five years after his diagnosis. At that point, I was living in San Francisco, but had come back to L.A. to visit. On this particular day, I'd taken my dad to Sports Authority and to the beach, two places he liked to go to a lot. For whatever reason, I recorded him. So we're driving down Artesia, and he says, What sport do you play? Have you ever played baseball? I say, yeah, first base and pitcher. Righty or lefty? I say, lefty. Ah, you're a lefty? Man, had I known you, I would have taught you so many tricks. How to grip the ball, how to throw a sidearm. I used to be great. We drive past my old high school, and he looks at me confused and asks, Where are you going, young man? And I say, home. I'm taking you home. And he says, oh wait, no, you can't take me all the way there. I can't afford that. I'm going to have to get off here. My dad thinks I'm a cab driver. My dad then turns to me and he says, 
Young man, I'll be thankful to you all my life. You're a decent and good person. We get out of the car, we're walking towards the apartment, and I keep a close eye on him because what the fuck is happening here? And suddenly, he recognizes me again. Were you the one that was driving? Yeah. I didn't recognize you with sunglasses on. You didn't recognize me? He says, it's true. I just thought, I don't know. Yeah. It's five years later, Super Bowl Sunday, 2017. I don't know if you remember it, but it was the Patriots-Falcons, and it was, and still is, one of the greatest games in Super Bowl history. The Patriots are losing by 25 points, and then they start scoring touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. Game goes into overtime. Tom Brady raises the Lombardi Trophy, and then my cell phone rings. It's my mom. Ya papi murió. Dad's dead, she said. All I could do was stare at the TV. People were like, who could feel worse than the Atlanta Falcons right now? And I was like, me. And now whenever I think about the day my dad died, All I can picture is Tom Brady's stupid, perfect face. And if there was any doubt coming into this game about Tom Brady and where he ranks, (laughs) nobody's ever won more Super Bowls, nobody's ever been better. There are so many things I never got to ask my dad. I'd do anything just to have five minutes with the guy. Five minutes. Like, I want to know, Dad, how'd you stay married for 53 years? Because now I'm married, and it's cool, but 53 seems like a lot. And what's it like to be a dad? Because I think I want to be a dad someday, too. I know I'm sick of being an uncle. I'm Latino. I've been an uncle since fifth grade. And there are other questions about your life in Cuba and your family there. You are always so secretive about the bad stuff, but I want to know all of it. I want to know what happened. And that's what I'm going to do in the show. First stop, my mom. Hi, Mama. Hi, Mom. I like the new shoes. You like them? I love it. Son comodos. Los cogí en Nueva York. Get back in. Adidas. It's a shoes. Cute, Papa. I like it. This is Scattered, Episode 1. 
Ok, mi nombre es Ana. Eh, soy la mamá de, de Beautiful Handsome Guy. Su nombre es Chris. Christian García. To understand my dad's past, I'm going straight to the person who knew him best. My mom, Anna, the love of his life. She's four foot eight, and I like to joke that she's so small she looks far away. She's kind of like a chihuahua, tiny and adorable, and she's always up in my shit. And she loves Pitbull, you know, the Cuban rapper. She says he looks like he smells good. Baby, I'm a fireball. My mom's favorite movies are Big Mama's House, Paul Blart Mall Cop, and... Uh, the Family... The Family, ¿cómo se llama? <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> Meet the Fockers. <laughs> that's it. And when I visit her in Miami, she welcomes me in a way that's just so textbook old Cuban lady. It's like, hey, can you prove that you're Cuban real quick? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> And 53, 54, 55, 56, 57. There were more than 70 mangoes in that fridge, like she was running a black market jamba juice. Now, the story of how my parents met is one I've heard a hundred times before, and my mom loves telling it. They grew up three doors down from each other in Lautong, a working class neighborhood in Havana. They started dating as teenagers, they'd go out dancing. After two years, my dad declared his love on New Year's Eve and then proposed to my mom six weeks later on Valentine's Day. They got married in 1964 and had my sister in 1965. They waited another 12 years before they had me. My mom assures me that I was not an accident, but that's an accident amount of years for sure. By the time I came around, they had immigrated twice and finally settled in Los Angeles, but we'll get to that later. For now, I just wanted on the record that my parents were married for more than half a century, and for all that time, they were crazy about each other. My mom wants listeners to know that my dad liked her legs. She's told me to include that in this podcast twice now. I remember them holding hands all the time and cuddling on the couch in front of the TV. And he was a macho guy. But my dad held her purse when they went out. Like some guy would bump into him on the street and my dad would be like, Hey, watch where you going, man. And then he'd just turn and saunter away with a teal handbag on his arm. No voy a encontrar un hombre como papi. No voy a encontrarlo. My mom says she'll never find a man like my dad again. It's been a rough couple of years for her. On top of losing her husband, she lost both of her parents. She's a widow and an orphan all at once. She actually just sold my grandparents' house in Florida. She spent months clearing the place out. That's why I'm visiting her there. Stuff is scattered everywhere. There's an old domino set, a box of photographs, even a rusty machete. But what I was most excited about was my grandpa's record collection. Oh, classic. Every New Year's Eve, we'd count down the hours by listening to the records of this Cuban comedian named Álvarez Guedes. He was a master at pointing out the absurdities of life in Cuba 
and life as a Cuban exile living in the States. Those records were my first exposure to stand-up. When Fidel dies, we're going to uh, bury his feet in Santiago or wherever he was born, because that's where he took his first steps, in Havana, because that's where he had his greatest thoughts, but where are going to bury his ass because he shit all over the country. <laughs> but like, it was like this type of like subversive, like, ooh, sick burn communism. My parents didn't always hate Castro. They had grown up poor under the dictatorship of a guy named Fulgencio Batista. And even though Cuba's economy was technically doing well during those years, it was mostly the rich who benefited. My mom, she had to drop out of school in the sixth grade because she couldn't afford books. My dad and his sister were abandoned by their father and ended up homeless. So when this young, tall, charismatic guy Fidel shows up in 1959, promising economic equality, access to education for all, and fair elections, it sounded pretty good. People like my parents were hopeful. A tremendous personal triumph, Castro rode in glory into Havana. Cubans, hundreds of thousands of them, gave him a hero's welcome. But that optimism didn't last. Bueno, lo desilusionamos por eso cuando ya empezaron las restricciones, cuando perseguían las religiones. No había libertad. Cuando quitaron la libertad de todo, el cubano, no podía expresarse en la calle porque venían... My mom says that when Fidel declared himself a communist, it seemed like the regime took away the freedom of everything. He began arresting Catholic priests and Jehovah's Witnesses, anyone who didn't accept Fidel as the ultimate highest power. You couldn't criticize the government in public, or the police would come and beat you and take you to jail. She says you couldn't express your opinion. You couldn't be free. And it just got worse. A U.S. embargo on Cuba hurt the economy, and food was rationed. My mom used to trade cartons of cigarettes on the black market for bags of rice or beans. Everyone started to leave, she says. People with means left for the U.S., abandoning their homes and businesses and taking whatever they could carry. But for most Cubans, leaving wasn't easy. Unless you wanted to brave the journey to Key West at night by raft, you had to request an exit visa. And then, if you were young and fit, you might have to do hard time in a labor camp before your request was granted. It was kind of like paying your dues to the country before you bailed. And a last fuck you from Fidel. My dad was one of those people. To earn his ticket out, he was sent to pull sugarcane in the fields 30 miles east of Havana, he stayed there for about a year. That's pretty much all my family has said. But what happened inside that labor camp? That's one of the things I want to figure out. Because I'm pretty sure there's a direct line from the guy who threatened a Little League ump back to the guy who was forced to work in those sugarcane fields. But whenever I ask my mom about those final years in Cuba, this is what tends to happen. Pero de eso no me acuerdo, mamá. ¿Será que bloqueé? 
lo bloqueé. She'll say, lo bloqueé, which means I blocked it out. One of the few details I have been able to squeeze out of her is that when my dad came back from the labor camp, he was skinny. Esquina, esquina, como el papi estaba. He was as skinny as he was at, he Dice, was at the él, end of his life. Él le hace cuento a todo el mundo que cuando ya regresó a La Habana, llegó a la casa y tocó la puerta y la ahorita estaba chiquita, tenía como seis o siete o cinco años. Y no lo conoció y dijo Laurita a, 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 a mí, Mami, Maya, hay un hombre, hay un señor en la puerta, está tocando, está preguntando. Y no lo conoció porque lo delgado que estaba. So, Papi siempre hacía el cuento ese. So when my, uh, when my dad finally got out of the sugar cane camp, um, he came back to uh, my, my mom's house, my, their old house, and he knocked on the door and my sister saw him and was like, hey, mom, there's a man at the door. She, he, he was left so skinny and frail that she didn't even recognize him anymore. And that story fits with other things I noticed while I was growing up. Like his hands and wrists were covered in these thin scars. And he'd get startled really easily, like every time the doorbell rang. Or all those times he'd fly off the handle out of nowhere. There's something else my mom doesn't like talking about, which is whether or not we should go back to Cuba to scatter my dad's ashes. That was his dying wish. And I get it. It's a big ask. Hey, do me a favor after I'm dead. Take my ashes, get on a plane, fly to the country we fled because we feared for our lives, paddle out on a canoe made out of patio furniture, and throw my incinerator remains into the sea. Oh yeah, make sure the secret police don't catch you. Okay, peace out. My mom, she doesn't care about dying wishes because she never wants to go back to Cuba again. Porque es muy desagradable. La gente que van a Cuba viene muy mal. Viene muy sufrido por la miseria y como dejan a familiares. Para los turistas es todo muy lindo, beautiful. Pero cuando tú vas a, a las casas de, de los familiares, los que viven en Cuba, es horrible, es una miseria. Entonces, a veces que uno va y viene más triste de lo que se fue. My mom says Cuba is great for tourists, but immigrants and exiles just go back and see the family they left behind and the misery that they live in. She says you come back to the States sadder than when you left. So she's proposed an alternative to my dad's wish, to scatter his ashes off the coast of Miami. Like, hey, it's all the same ocean. Let's just hope the wind sends it 90 miles that away. But I still think if Cuba is what my dad wanted, that's what we need to do. No, mom, yo no quiero no, eso no, porque no. Yo sé, no, I know, yo sé que tú I quieres. Por, no, no está bien, pero lo que papi quiere es que nosotros lo hicimos. En, en, en las la playas, de, no, cosa seca, pero de Cuba no dijo la cosa seca de seca, Miami. Seca de Cuba. So, he said he wanted this in Cuba. So, yo creo que para respetar a papi, la que seca, lo digo, se, sí, sí, se sí. quita. Y también para, para que tú veas tu... Um, tu mamá. Sí, sí. He's like me. He's like me. Él es llorón como yo. Él es llorón como yo. Y me gusta. Me gusta. Llora, llora. Translation, my son's a crybaby and I love it. Ah, pero yo creo que sería muy especial a llevar a papi y dejarlo ahí. En el malecón o algo así, mamá. En el malecón no, porque no permite. ¿Tú crees que se lo devuelve? Hay gente pescando, capaz que lo cogen y se lo pesquen. No, la gente está loca ahora. I said that they should do it in Malecón. It's where they have their uh, 
No, el madre con Gucci. Yeah. Y en el hotel y tú hacen sexo en el muro. En la bahía, en la bahía, en la bahía. She's like, no. So, so we'll, we'll put his ashes in there and someone will fish it out. Yeah, are you kidding yeah. me? People are having sex in that water. We yeah. can't leave that there. <laughs> Good idea, mom. Si tú tuviera cinco minutos con papi, ¿qué tú hicieras con él? El amor. No, muy, cinco minutos muy poquito. I asked her if she had five minutes with my father, what she would do, and she said, I'd make love, but five minutes isn't enough time. There's at least one person in my life who takes me seriously because I pay him. Thanks. Well, the friends in the crowd, my therapist is in the crowd. Well... Not awkward, not awkward at all. Dino Dinanato. Am I doing okay so far, Dino? Okay. He's low on clients right now, so I told him to come to the comedy club, <laughs> hang out in the back. Some comedians will just come right to you like fucking moths to a flame. That'd be great. That way they don't have to go to open mics anymore. Just put their bullshit out there, you know? Well, I'm back in my seat opposite Chris, and I'm a little uh, taken aback by a former client who wants to uh, interview me. But as always, Chris was on the uh, cutting edge. Dino's 72 and 5'4". He's the perfect person to give me advice because he's small like my mom and yells at me like my dad. He's my Mickey, the coach from Rocky. He's always like, come on, Chris, get out there. You got this. You have to own that space on the stage. You take it over. You know, it's all yours. And that was one of the places we did a lot of our work back in the good old days. I hadn't talked to Dino since my dad died. His office is this sunny zen oasis with a giant wall of psychology books, a Buddha sculpture, plants everywhere. I started seeing Dino back in 2009 while I was living in San Francisco. I was overwhelmed with work and comedy and the fact that my dad was getting worse and I was living 350 miles away. It was very disturbing to you and I really recall uh, when I first heard these stories that hmm, this sounds like someone who was just sort of beginning to feel possible dementia. Dino and I spent a lot of time talking about the things I wanted to ask my dad and about how frustrated and sad I was that my dad couldn't answer me and that he'd never be able to. This not knowing was driving me insane. Remember, one of the things we used to talk about was that humans hate not knowing. And that's what's going on here, Chris. You don't know. You're right. And I think it's, but I want to know. I want <laughs> fucking answers. I'm like, right. my dad's dead. I want answers. Well, like, I want I want to <laughs> know that he knows that I know that I don't know. Yeah. Do you think there's any psychological merit to me doing a podcast where I talk about my dead dad? And I guess, you know, I don't think there's anything about it, you know, in a textbook that would say, you know, this is 
really terrible. It's not a podcast section <laughs> in the book. <laughs> you know, it, it just seems to me that, if anything, it might help you to put a, you know, a stone on the headstone and, and just be able to walk away. I don't know about a stone on the headstone. There's no actual headstone in this case. Just a box that holds my dad's ashes sitting on the top shelf of my closet between a Paul McCartney record and a mask of Gizmo from Gremlins. But I am going to figure out the story of my dad's life. There's this thing my dad used to say when I was a kid. He'd say, If you're going to do something, do it all through the way. All through the way. Papi, you got it. Left town, an ocean on town. Blue tie, an orange won't let go. Let me be. Scattered is a production of WNYC Studios. You can find photos of my family back in Cuba, funny videos with my mom, and a bunch of other cool stuff on our Instagram, Scattered Podcast. Daniel Guimet and Rebecca Ibarra produced the show, with editing by Joanna Salataroff, Jenny Lawton, and Paula Schumann. The show is executive produced by Paula and me, Chris Garcia. Our technical director is Joe Plord, and the music is by Hannes Brown and Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Zoe Sullivan. Our intern is Jennifer Sanchez. Our theme song is Please Won't Please by Elado Negro, courtesy of Revenge International. Special thanks to Nancy Updike and This American Life. Therapy by Dino DiNonato. And for days now, I'll wait around.